Today, we are welcoming back to the podcast Dr. Jennifer Kasten. She's a practicing pediatric pathologist with degrees in medicine from the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, infectious disease epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a year's postgraduate work in the mathematical modeling of infectious disease at Oxford University, and a master's in the history of medicine and science, also from Oxford. That's a lot of school. Given her education and pithy sense of humor, she created a Facebook page to clarify COVID-related issues, first for friends and family, and then some posts went viral, and she has turned into a phenomenon. If you don't follow her, you should. Now, we recorded two episodes. The first was an update on COVID, what we've learned in the last 11 months since we have spoken. We discussed the new variants, how this affects our not long-term sequelae, long-hauler syndrome, and which countries handled the virus best and why. Somehow, we even got into federalism. If you like this episode, make sure to check out the next one where we discuss the vaccines. Also, I'd like to mention that I'm now part of a network, the Dr. Podcast Network, where all of the podcasts cater to a physician audience. For instance, Dr. Kate Mangona has a podcast called Medicine, Marriage, and Money. Be sure to check it out. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Hey there, this is Dr. Erin Wiseman. I'm a fellow Dr. Podcast Network member, life coach, and mama three. I kick butt, I take names, and I help other high-achieving people do the exact same. And today, I want to invite you over to my podcast, Dr. Me First. It's well over 300 episodes, and each one is filled with inspiration and advice from amazing guests. So grab your wife, your mom, your sister, your best friend, and come tune in as we explore what it means to be a woman in medicine and a woman in this world. Because this podcast is a dose of everything that I needed when I was burned out, exhausted, and ready to quit it all. At the end of the day, I do this to help you feel more connected to yourself and to connect with others. I love to end my show with a kick of encouragement. So here's my favorite tagline. Your life, your calling, your pulse matters. See you over at Dr. Me First. Dr. Jennifer Kasten, thanks so much for being back on the podcast. Brad, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for that extremely generous check you sent me to get me back on. <laughs> All of my interviewers are, are well, well compensated. So our last interview was May 18th, 2020. So now it's April 20th, the date that we're recording this. So 11 months later, how's your year been? Well, it's been a year, hasn't it? My year has been quite good, honestly. I've had it so easy compared to other people, and I, I don't want to sit and be smug in my position of good fortune, but no one in my family has been sick. No one I know has died. The same is true for my work colleagues. Um, they have been touched by COVID as a tragedy, some of them, but no one actually with whom I work has been touched. And it's been a time of intense personal, <clears throat> excuse me, reflection and growth and interests and hobbies. And so I've had this sort of like dream kind of prestige pandemic compared to other people. 
And I don't want to make light of that because I know this is a little bit of, of a serious note to start things off, but it's certainly been a year of intense anguish and suffering for so many hundreds of millions of people across the world. Well, I think you're just looking on your time with gratitude for what you have. And my wife and I say the same thing. Like, listen, there have been some some struggles. There have been some tough times in this last year. But, you know, we count our lucky stars about all the things that we have to be grateful for. So I don't think it's making light of it. I think it's just appreciating your experience for, for yeah. what it was. Well, and there's been plenty of fodder for black humor because, you know, yeah. I'm an autopsy pathologist. So, hey, <laughs> it's been a growth industry this past year. It's been great. So what's your quarantine skill been? What, what or skills? It sounds like from what we talked about before, there might've been more than one. Well, there might be. Now, to be precise, because your listeners are interested, I have not been in quarantine. I was never quarantined because I was never a person under suspicion of infection or a close contact of someone who is infected. So words matter. I'm poor choice of words. No, not quarantined. Yes. Not quarantined. Not on a ship in the Venetian harbor for 40 days. No. But my pandemic skills. So I have all these outdoorsy hobbies. I have taken up forestry and I've chopped up an oak tree. Um, I've brought in about 10,000 pounds of firewood. And I can recommend that highly to anyone who has any sense of frustration or anger, which they'd like to vent. I replaced the main water line to my house. I dug a giant trench and then chopped up the pipe and replaced that. That was useful. I still run in the woods. What about you? I dug a moat around my house. Has it kept everybody out? Yep, yep. Filled it with alligators. No, I dug a fire pit because something that the, the men in my neighborhood have been doing is we have this rotation that started towards the beginning of the pandemic because we'd be outside with a fire between us and we would have a, a, you know, every two weeks or so, it'd be a different person's house. There are a couple of us have a fire and sit around the fire and, and hang out socially distanced. And so yeah, I did not killed, have a fire pit. So I fire dug one. Viruses. Yeah. So that's yeah. good. Yes. So we were trying to keep it as, as safe as possible. I don't know if that's a skill. I dug a hole and then it took well, some I dug a hole. You know what? When I was out digging that hole, Brad, I, that was a skill. Like, I thought, I'm going to put this on my resume. I'm now better at digging holes. So there was some learned technique there. No, and then I stacked some papers around. Everyone's very impressed. And I was like, your five-year-old could stack. They stack blocks. That's basically all I did. I didn't even cement them together. So that was my quarantine. My quarantine activity. Uh, really, I didn't pick up a skill. Uh, and I've been podcasting throughout. So Yeah, that's good. So I guess what I hear is that I... And better than you. Yes. Because well, I we knew that. Myself. We knew that. Right. But it's important to reiterate it for the audience. <laughs> the audience knows in case there was ever. They're not here to listen to me, even though it's my podcast. They're here to listen to you. Everybody. everybody well, you're, you're the eye candy. That's how this works. You're the eye candy, but also the straight man. That's why we need a, a YouTube channel. That's why I need to get that YouTube channel started so they can see the, uh, the light that's reflect glistening off my forehead right now. It's blinding. It's not my good looks that are blinding. No, but it's the tears of your adoring fans. All right, let's keep going with the questions. So so what are you doing now, now that you're vaccinated? So this interview was actually scheduled for a couple of months ago, but you unfortunately, on your vaccination, had some, some arthralgias, some fever. So you had to cancel on me at the last minute. So now, So I know you're vaccinated. So now that you're vaccinated, what are you doing that you weren't doing before vaccination and what are you still not comfortable doing? 
That's a great question. So I was going to say, I'm sitting in this chair talking to you, but then you followed up with something more specific. So now that I'm vaccinated, honestly, I'm not acting differently. And I would recommend that others follow that tack too. Because, you know, vaccines, each vaccine, whatever, whatever it is that you got shot up in your arm with, has an intrinsic failure rate. And if we believe the data that was published in a somewhat proprietary fashion by Moderna and Pfizer, there's a five or 10% failure rate there for the adenoviral vector-based ones, the J&J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is actually the one I got on study. So I'm one of the few people in the United States with AZ on board, baby. So there we are, that the failure rate is even higher. So as long as community transmission is swirling around at the level at which it's continuing to swirl, and that's partially driven by the variants, which I imagine we'll be discussing in a little bit. I'm not acting differently at all. And I still mask and I still won't be around people who aren't masked. And I'm still not gathering publicly unless there's a very, very, very good indication to do so. Not much has changed for me. Now, once I see transmission knocked down, really be suppressed by the combination of artificial and natural immunity that we'll have via our very high COVID infection rate and also our vaccine rate. Sure, absolutely. Because what I want to say is when I'm out and about, when I'm doing something, when I'm in a group of people, what's the chance that somebody sitting next to me might be an active infectious case? As long When community transmission is low and the number that gets tossed around is about 50 per 100,000 cases, when it's that, that level or below, well, the chance is pretty low. It's not nil, of course, but it's low. And I'll feel like my vaccine on board probably gives me that barrier that I need. So, But what about the CDC guidelines, right? They said that vaccinated people can be in close quarters unmasked because the risk that even if you are one of them is in the lower chances of getting, you know, that they get infected, the likelihood then that they are able to transmit it to you and that any of you would get seriously ill, right, is, so what you're saying seems to be in contrast to the CDC's recommendation or the CDC's guidelines. Now, again, so what the CDC is saying is like a blanket guideline for the entire American population of 330 million people, many of whom have pandemic fatigue, many of whom can't distance because of their living situation or job situation or anything else. I think it's kind of akin to the sort of advice we were getting about a year ago when they said, hey, you know what would be a good idea? We can still gather. Let's just say some arbitrary number, 10, 50, depending where you lived, that number or less, that's pretty good. Well, all that does is slow things down a little bit, maybe. You know, the chance of contracting COVID in a group of 10 or 50 is certainly less than in a sports arena with 10,000 people. But, but, but biologically, I mean, if somebody in that group were to be infected, What's, what's the difference if it's one out of 10 or one out of 50? Who cares, right? If it's one out of 10, you're probably more likely to be circulating around and talking to that person or being in contact with them, right? And so, yeah, I, I do know the CDC guidance is that, sure, vaccinated people, friends, you can have some people over in your home, small group, why not? I think that's fine. It makes sense. It's, it's realistic for how people feel and want to live. But at the same time, like I said, as long as transmission is swirling around at the level which it is, I don't know if it's a good idea. Well, thank God my mom does not listen to this podcast. 
because she is now coming over to my house one day a week to watch the 18-month-old, which she wasn't doing previously. And we kind of need the help right now. No, so, but that, Brad, that's different. To me, that's different. Okay, so you might say, how is it different? epidemiologically well it is very slightly because you probably know your mother fairly well i assume and you might know her risk-taking behavior in general and whatnot yeah, yeah. she wipes down the baby definitely. before and after she she she's there that's right well that's very good clorox wipe clorox all over them yeah. yeah just take them outside and spray them that's what mm-hmm. i would think no but that's a necessity of life Childcare is a necessity of life allowing people to work and resume their careers is, and and grandparent grandchild bonding that's a necessity you know, what I'm talking about, what the CDC specifically mentioned in their guidelines is socializing, yeah. which is certainly something as, you know, social collective animals we all crave, but I wouldn't put it on the same plane of necessity as those other things I just mentioned. Childcare. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. But yeah, the, the a lot of the mental health toll, I think, is from social isolation at this point, right? At the beginning, there was there was risk of disease. There was economic fallout. And I think the social isolation is taking its toll. And, you know, this is the great debate, right? Like children being in school, right? Oh, but will someone, will like uh, what's from The Simpsons, will someone think of the children? You know, that's what they say, that the, the people that want to like open up everything and, and have everybody unmasked, yeah, that's, that everything needs to be taken, taken within context. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and it should be. I... I firmly agree that the whole secondary and tertiary mortality idea of mental health, suicidality, isolation, even things as somewhat, you know, delayed or second order as pandemic stress eating and weight gain and and fear of, of exercising in a group setting, lack of access to outdoor exercise, et cetera. All of that is extremely important to weigh when you're thinking about cost benefit measures. Absolutely. And anybody who says to the contrary, you know, anybody who tries to paint this whole pandemic in black and white zebra stripes, I'll be very suspicious of that person. Yeah, and I think the, the experts, though, are taking that stuff into consideration. And the, the people that just want to open everything up and pretend it doesn't just make, yeah, fine, we're all going to get infected eventually, just open everything up because it's going to happen. You know, they have their agenda and they're saying it in the guise of, oh, you're not considering the mental health of all these people. But I think we yeah. are. Right, we are when we're making those guys. We are. It's a very calculated decision, just like you said about the CDC. Right, they're taking to account because if they're too strict about the guidelines, then people are just going to blow them up and throw them away. So you got to give people a little bit to work with, and you got to give. And also, I think there's something to incentivizing people to get vaccinated. Right, yeah. like oh, unvaccinated people, vaccinated people can gather. Okay, then maybe I will it's get it. it. Yeah, it. yeah. You know, I, I'm yeah. sure that's part of the calculation. And then there's Ted Nugent. He just, I know he said something recently. What What was it? Oh, well, he, he has COVID. Oh, and right. He, and he was quite sick with it. Yeah. But he spent most of early and mid-April railing about how it was a conspiracy and it was a trumped up threat. Is, did, did he admit that he was wrong? He, he, he admitted that COVID was a bitch. But he didn't say, I was wrong. But he didn't say that it was a good idea to be vaccinated or that he was incorrect, no. Yeah. So... Since the beginning of the pandemic, has there been anything that you've changed your mind about? Anything that you thought was true and then found out wasn't true, thought was likely, but turned out to be incorrect? Like, do you scrub your groceries before bringing them? Did you ever scrub your groceries? If I remember from our first interview, that was not a thing. Do you scrub your 
your shoes or your children or other people's children before they come into the house? Well, other people's children for certain. No, I, I mean, I've spoken from a position of complete infallibility since the very beginning, and I, I'm pr- pleased to uphold that reputation. Ted Nugent did you know? not admit that he was wrong, so... No. Uh, so why should I? Exactly. That's what I say. To be honest, though, the answer to your question is no. There, there is nothing that since March I said that I now consider to be incorrect. And you know what's fun? You know Facebook. Have you heard about this site called Facebook? No, I'm not it's, familiar it's with it. Are you, you can, are you on there? I've been this on it. Yeah, face? mostly I sell stuff on Marketplace. <laughs> but occasionally I talk to other people about COVID on there. And the fun thing is Facebook pops up reminders on your timeline. Oh, a year ago you said this. And there's nothing yet that's popped up that I said, oh, oh, let's delete that one. No, which is obviously, again, because I'm infallible. Yeah. But, but more to the point, um, I, I think just a lot was apparent by the time the U.S. really started to, to be hammered by COVID from the experience of other nations. I think there were, again, certain myths that were guiding policy here that if you'd really looked at other countries, you could say, eh, probably not. Like the idea, again, that we had these separate single importation events and that we had these very local epidemics that could be kind of stamped out. If you looked at other countries, you'd say that's absolutely ludicrous. Of course, we've had hundreds of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of importation events since December or January. And that's true. I think the, the calculation of r naught has been fairly consistent. The calculation of the infection fatality rate and the case fatality rate has been fairly consistent from what we speculated back in March, April to now. Well, what about these new variants? Does that yeah. doesn't that change or not? Uh, well, it's, that's fun. Yes, it does. It does. Um, and and I, I, we talked about this. Gosh, I guess eleven months ago. And you I did. About and you page. you asked me to do arithmetic, and I wasn't able to do it. So please, if you could refrain from asking additional. No, I I, I, I already laid out the disclaimer that you are the eye candy here. So there's nothing expected of you other than a winning smile. Excellent. I'll keep providing that. Okay, very good. No, so so the the variants are, number one, an absolute, this time infallible, not ironically applied, an infallible law of virology, especially this virus, which is a single-stranded RNA virus. As you know, they're so much more prone to copy errors than any other kind of nucleic acid virus. It's inevitable that they will mutate at a relatively rapid clip and that these variants will pop up. And just like anything else in evolution, a lot of them will be completely useless and will just die out and and just be non-functional. But of course, there's going to be gain-of-function mutations. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And it's inevitable, too, that the vaccines that we've developed for the current strain at some point in time, maybe in two years, maybe in a decade, maybe in a century, are going to be ineffective because the virus will have escaped. It will have mutated to the degree that it will have escaped. That's certainly not the case now for anybody listening who doesn't want to fast forward, but it will inevitably be the case at some point. So the same thing with the variants. So we can talk about B117, we can talk about P1 from Brazil, we can talk about the South African variant. All three of those have an r naught that's been calculated to be higher by far than the dominant COVID strain that was circulating around in Europe in February, March, and it came over here. So there was a p- paper published, I think in I think in around January, about the B117 experience in the UK. 
and they calculated R0 to be between 43 and 90% higher than the dominant COVID strain when we were saying, again, R0 was roughly 2.2. So that would put R0 at three to four. And look at, I mean, look at the map right now. Now that, our, that, now that the B117 variant in particular is accounting for 70, 75% of US new cases, you can watch it just burning like wildfire through the unvaccinated, unexposed population. It's, it's doubling every nine to 10 days. And that's, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. It's certainly at a much more rapid clip than the original strain. But the excellent news there, of course, is that the vaccines are perfectly effective against it. So it's ripping through the unvaccinated population and the underexposed population. It's also, of course, going to get a tiny, tiny, tiny toehold in the vaccinated. Because again, every vaccine has an intrinsic failure rate. It's a law of nature. So there's going to be a small number of vaccinated individuals as well, but they're not going to drive transmission. But it's probably going to be higher than what the study showed, right? Because if R0 is higher, then doesn't that make it, if it's therefore more transmissible, then wouldn't it be more likely to infect the vaccinated people? Might be. We'll have to see. Okay. It just depends. It's So there's there's a, certainly there's an argument there from just because more people will be infected, you'll be hammered with it more. And so maybe, yeah, you'll, one of these viruses could achieve escape velocity, so to speak, and take off. But at the same time, neutralizing antibodies are equally protective against the dominant strain as they are to the variant strains. T-cell immunity is equally protective in the early studies. So there's no reason to think that the vaccines, having them on board, will render you somehow slightly, slightly more vulnerable than to the dominant strain. Or the, I keep calling it that. It's no longer actually dominant numerically. The original strain. <laughs> the original, yeah, the godfather. You want to call it the godfather? The OS? Like OG? Yeah, I like the OG. Why just OG. Just the, OG? the OG strain. Yeah. That seems legit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll put that, we'll put that in our New England image. Journal paper. Hell yeah. I think it gives it the tough guy image it craves. Because, you know, when you look at the story of COVID, you might say there's some fragility here. There's somebody desperate to prove himself. It's like small man disease. No, you're not buying no. it. No. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll call him Logie. Okay. Okay. I mean, is there anything else that we should be aware of? Because right, with the, the principles of virology is it should select for being more spreadable and then also less virulent, right? Less, well, to is a, that the right word? Point. Less dangerous. Yeah, to a point. You don't want to kill your host. You don't want to kill your host too quickly and too many of them. But certainly a, a, a reasonable amount of virulence is perfectly fine. As long as it can hang out in your body long enough to propagate and to spread to others, it doesn't really care terribly much. We're being very teleological here, but it doesn't care terribly much what happens to you. Okay. You could die. I'm very fine. As long as you... As long as you've already pumped out the trillions of copies yeah. and you spread on somebody else, who cares? Yeah. Okay, so we're not seeing that. So we're, it's not... The reason yeah. it's, we're seeing few people getting sick is because who it's infecting, not because of... Yeah. Um, not because of any change in virulence. Now, now, there's probably people listening now who are shouting abuse at their screen. I will say that there is some mixed data here. Some studies, early studies, show that there might be a slight mortality bump with some of the variants, just to say that, especially the Brazilian variant. But everything's so muddled and murky down in Brazil, no one's entirely clear. What is... Well, hang on. What was the second thing you said? I don't remember. Vir virulence, so is it? Is it... Is it more dangerous? I thought that was the whole thing I said. That was the whole thing you said. 
I had a thought. I'm sure it was scintillatingly brilliant, but it escaped me. It would have been the most quotable part of the entire episode. Mm-hmm. The the listeners. Evaporated. I'm sure the listeners are like, no, you said this too. And uh, I'm sorry. Maybe we'll cover it in part three, if there ever is one. Now that COVID is over, what do we know? Because nobody's going to want to hear about COVID anymore once that is, whenever that is. How many PhD theses are going to be about COVID in all disciplines? All of them. Yeah. Yeah. Studio art. So let's talk about something that's near and dear to your heart as a pathologist. Let's talk about pathophysiology. Can we talk about the pathophysiology of the COVID long haulers? What is going on there? I don't have a bloody clue. Okay. To be honest. I don't know if anybody has a clue. Thank you for clarifying. No, I mean, it's important to be honest here. And why do people have these POTS-like symptoms? I don't know. Okay. There's no virus hanging out. There's no long-term viral reservoir. We know that. Um, when people are acutely infected with COVID, and the majority of whom recover without too many consequences, they don't seem to have any neurologic or vestibule symptoms, primarily. So, so why are the long haulers having this orthostasis and this fatigue? I don't know. Unknown. Okay. No, and, and you know, and uh, so one of my hobbies is is trail running, and I pre-pandemic competed around a lot in that, and and I got to write an article on COVID long haulers in in ultra marathoners. So these are extremely fit people. I mean, in the upper 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 first percentile of cardiovascular conditioning, and they're also people who you might say psychologically or personality wise are not complainers, are used to putting themselves through grueling, very difficult things. You know, running 100 miles in a race is a tough thing. In I want to throw up just hearing that. Yeah, no, in the middle of the woods by yourself at night, it's it's a mental game. And, and there are people who, in this community, who got COVID and can't, can barely walk around the block. And they used to run 100 miles in a go. And Again, they're they're in the upper echelon of people who are cardiovascularly conditioned, right? Why? I can't tell you. I mean, I can look at the virus under the microscope, and I certainly have done. You can see it. You can see it infecting cells. You can do these cool stains where it lights up with immunofluorescence, and there it is, and awesome. Um, but we don't see that in the COVID long haulers. There's no virus hanging around, and there's no obvious pathology when you look at their tissue microscope. Is it anything like post-treatment Lyme syndrome? I mean, it sounds similar to it, right? You, I don't know if you get much Lyme disease where, where you are. You know, here in the Northeast, it's, it's, it's a big problem. And so, right, that's, it's referred to by part of the population as chronic Lyme, but ultimately you're, there's no virus. There's no Lyme. There's, there's no, no well, the thing about chronic Lyme, you know, the, the, that patient community has a lot of frustration with, the shall I say orthodox medical establishment because it's it's not recognized under the ways that we typically think of disease. Yeah, we can't. There's no shadow cast by chronic Lyme. The patients all have this uniform sort of phenotype. Yeah, but there's nothing we can see, you know, as far as tissue alterations under any way we can assess for tissue alteration to to verify that. Right. And then they don't feel validated because we can't find something objective. 
Right. Right. Even right. though we recognize that they like it has a name, it's consistent throughout, but and it seems like there's some consistency here with what they experience fatigue. I don't know if they're experiencing the COVID long haulers are getting arthralgias, but fatigue, arthralgia, brain fog. The pox right? type yeah, stuff too. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So we don't know what's going on in either. No, either we situation. don't. I mean, and you could say, is it akin to sort of to mental health where of course there's no shadow cast there. Yeah. You look at a brain biopsy of someone with schizophrenia and a brain biopsy of someone without, they don't look any different. But this doesn't believe that, the, I mean, the Orthodox medical establishment certainly thinks schizophrenia is a, a thing. There's no controversy there. So, you know, it's just, I think it's the case that we just aren't there yet. I mean, our our, our diagnostic modalities and our the way we assess reality just hasn't caught up yet. Yeah. So I don't disbelieve in a sense at, for a second, any of their, their narrative or their experience. It's just, there's no shadow that's flickering on the wall of the cave right now. What about the reports that there's improvement after vaccination? You know, we see that with HPV and, and warts. You have a bunch of warts, you get the HPV vaccine, and sometimes they improve. Um, are, are, I've heard reports, I haven't seen any data. Are you aware of this at all? No, I wasn't. But I mean, with HPV and warts, that obviously makes a great deal of sense because you've not, you've kicked off this immune response to this really specific thing. Now that it's ready to go, it's rearing, it's all teed up. Ah, look! Here's something else driven by the same thing. We'll attack that. Yeah. So I think that makes sense. Um, and if people are, are experiencing this, you know, wonderful. Yeah. I've, I hope it encourages more people to be vaccinated, number one. But then number two, you know, that would be a key potentially to unlocking the pathophysiology. So there's this, the nebulousness of the long haulers, but what about other long-term sequelae that we're seeing, right? Cardiac issues, neurologic issues. Can you... Can you talk about some of those issues that we're seeing? Well, the cardiac issues are really interesting because, of course, I'm I'm a cardiac pathologist by day. And if I was extraordinarily interested in seeing if there's any, number one, just myocarditis, active myocarditis in COVID patients. Because we, you know, they, our clinical colleagues obviously report de- depressed ejection fractions and heart failure and everything else in, in COVID patients, even those who aren't crashing and dying in the ICU. So you say, well, it must be because the virus is hanging out in the heart. It certainly is hanging out in the heart a little bit. It infects endothelium, so it's certainly in the heart. But we don't really see the same pathologic cascade as I would see in other myocardidities. So, eh, mystery? Are we allowed to have a little mystery in the world? You're just a bucket of information, huh? Well, I'm sorry. If you want absolute certainty, I can send you down the street. Well, the absolute certainty was in your, well, not absolute certainty, but absolute correctness was in your, all of those Facebook posts where you, you got it all right. I did. Yeah, I was infallible. So, but, and neurologic issues the same way. Still, this is all just. Well, it's the same thing. I mean, again, the, the virus is known to infect endothelium. Um, yeah. I've seen it myself with my own eyes, with my own microscope. You can see the virus in the endothelium of blood vessels in the brain. So it's there. And then there are lots of post-inflammatory syndromes, I think, that occur all over the body. And in the brain, whenever you've got edema and immune cells that are migrating in and whatever else that comes with a post-inflammatory syndrome, you can say, you know what, neuronal transmission synapses, they might not be firing quite the same as usual. I mean, it might explain why are people experiencing delayed or, or impaired cognition, which they would describe as a brain fog, as you said, yeah. or more specific nerve palsies and um, the, 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 you know, more, more, I guess I would say physical symptoms like that. 
One of the things, one of the, sometimes we get pushback from patients who are reluctant to get the vaccine because they're like, well, we don't know the long-term sequelae of the vaccine. Now, the counter argument is always, well, we do know the short-term sequelae of COVID. <laughs> so, you know, th- that seems a reasonable thing. But for like the young, healthy people, right? You're like 16 to 26-year-olds who the likelihood of them getting uh, short-term sequelae that are serious, right? The short-term morbidity, mortality is extremely low. So if they, they're scared by internet boogeymen who are telling them that they're gonna not going to be able to reproduce or something like that, one of the counter arguments might be, well, we are seeing long-term sequelae in asymptomatic patients. So, you know, even though it's possible that you had the disease and didn't know it, uh, or you could you could contract the disease and didn't know it, and then develop these sequelae later on. Are, are we seeing that at all? Are we seeing these like, neurologic issues or cardiac issues or pulmonary issues or something like that in someone who had no idea that they contracted the disease and then proved they have antibodies later on and have problems because of Yeah, of course we're seeing that because now at this point, you've got hundreds of millions of cases all over the world. So in that in, you're going to have an example of nearly anything you want to look for. So absolutely, we're seeing that. Um, as far as why young people should be vaccinated, first off, the chance of them having a serious bout with COVID is not zero. It's low, but it's not zero, as you well know. Um, I work in a children's hospital, and I can tell you it's not zero. But And then there's, there's the altruistic reasons, of course, too, about contributing to the herd immunity threshold, protecting others close to them and whatnot. But there's really essentially zero downside. So there's upside, and the degree to which they consider the upside to be massive versus small, who knows, but it's still there. It's yeah. still positive. If you're weighing a risk-benefit, it's positive benefit to zero risk. So you're always going to come out in favor of doing but it. But they're, they're going to say, well, we don't know the long-term consequences of the vaccine, and no matter what you say about it, just evaporate. And actually... We're going to be getting to part two soon, which is going to be all about the vaccines. But still, we're, we're so we'll just talk about yeah. COVID now. Like, what are the types of things that we're seeing in people that were asymptomatic but now develop sequelae? Well, we're seeing what you've said. Yeah. The, a lot of the long-term, the long-haul COVID thing, symptoms are in people that had extremely mild cases to asymptomatic cases. They were they barely knew they were infected or. Or they can recall, oh, yeah, that's true. Actually, I did have some congestion, felt a little run down for a couple of days, I guess, yeah. now that I now that I dial things back with the retrospectoscope, I can see that. You know, so, so sometimes it seems very much the case that the COVID long haulers in particular, the severity of their post-COVID syndrome is in no way predicated on the severity of their COVID experience. That seems a fair a fair argument to be able to make. Although it seems in contrast to what, the Lyme long haulers experience, right? There, it tends to be in people that had longer cases of Lyme and more severe cases of Lyme. They're more likely to develop those long-term sequelae. But for COVID, could happen in anyone's young, old, symptomatic, asymptomatic. Seems to be the case. Yeah, okay. And of course, all the people who died don't develop long COVID. No, no. So in a way, it's biased towards people with less severe disease. Because they survive. Because they lived. Because they lived, yeah. Okay. They have the opportunity, whereas those who didn't survive, yes. There's that dark humor you were referring to earlier, gallows humor of medicine. That's right. 
So in our prior interview, we had talked about the cross-reactivity of the immune response between the alpha coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do we know any more about that? Like are the snotty noses that I'm seeing at home and at work protecting me in addition to the vaccine that's not protecting me? Uh, were we able to drill down anything more on that? Like, do we think that even the vaccine might help us develop colds? I mean, sorry, protect us against coronavirus colds? That's a great question. I think it's still open because, of course, what are people doing? They're still wearing masks, thankfully. They're still distancing, thankfully. And both those things are very, very effective towards transmission of colds. No kidding. My business has really contracted. I do adenotonsillectomies on kids. I do ear tubes on kids. I do sinus surgery on adults. All of these things are sequelae of colds. A sinus infection is a secondary infection of a cold. You develop adenotonsillar hyperplasia because of recurrent viral upper respiratory tract infection. You get ear infections because... So my my business is really contracting, which is fine. I'm happy for that. I'm happy that kids aren't getting sick. But yes, I am I am very well, aware we that, can up, that we kids can aren't catching colds. We can me if you need. Yeah. You know, for the block family. Poor, poor me. No, I'm fine. We're fine. There's plenty of other stuff out there. But... Yes, it is very apparent in the practice of yeah. otolaryngology. So it's such an artificial climate right now that I think it's an open question. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've seen these wonderful, extremely encouraging um, surveillance charts for flu, global surveillance yeah. for flu. It's absolutely flatlined to an extraordinary degree. And I know from my internal hospital data, you know how many how many positive influenza samples are we processing? Are we actually reporting out? It's it's essentially nil. Yeah, I mean it's like low single digits. We're completing flu season, and we're a major children's hospital, and it's not. I mean it's just not happening, and that's true all over the world. Like for WHO surveillance uh, samples that are sent in from literally everywhere in the world, it's amazing. It's yeah. wonderful. And how many how many lives have been saved in a way because of that? It's one positive spin on the pandemic. Yeah, and RSV right RSV as well. We're not seeing RSV. Yeah, we're not, we're not seeing not RSV seeing, yeah. and bronchiolitis. We're not seeing kids admitted for that and dying from that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so as far as it being like a field study question, it's open. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I don't know right now if there's been anything more that's been put out about cross-reactivity and, and a, more to the point a cross-protective effect of the alpha and the beta coronaviridae since we last spoke. So what lessons have we learned about handling a pandemic? Uh, and I don't know, even know who we refers to. Like we as a country, we as a world, we as a healthcare system. Well, um, I guess let's let's go with we as a healthcare system because that's where we both work. So what has the healthcare system learned about handling a pandemic? I mean, I'm going to pine slightly here. I think we as a world is the most useful metric because okay. I think one, the most obvious blatant thing has been the absolute futility of one nation trying to fight this in a silo. And we're just so porous. The world is porous. Except for New Zealand. Well, except for New Zealand. So yes, if you live on an an island thousands of miles away from everyone else with only 4 million people, and then I guess you're all right. But you know, so so New Zealand is is a wealthy nation, but it's adopted the same strategy as lots of poorer nations, which has just been, we've just got to prevent importation at any cost because we don't have the diagnostics. We don't have the therapeutics. And as things stand right now, we don't have the vaccines. 
There's about 70 countries on earth right now that basically have administered no doses of vaccine to anyone because the wealthy countries have sucked it all up, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So, you know, as long as as long as the virus is sloshing around the world and finding these eddies and back pools and channels, if you're thinking about it in a purely selfish way and not like, hey, let's try to save, you know, billions of lives, but it's selfishly, the idea of dropping some firewall around one arbitrarily defined bit of geography is so silly. And I thought we had potentially in this country learned that lesson when we went through the futile exercises of sealing off our borders back in March and February of 2020. And we were like, oh, right, okay, the horse is way out of the barn, all right. But then we did it again when the variants came out, right? When, when the variants were first described, the UK variant was described and first identified in, in London and, and Kent, actually, I think, in October of 2020. And in December, we started putting in travel restrictions and stuff to try to prevent its importation. We'd had perfectly free travel between the U.S. and the U.K. in the preceding two months. And, you know, so again, it's, it's sort of frustrating that these kinds of lessons aren't learned, right? And there's still, there's still travel bans. There right? are. Like, my, my in-laws live in Switzerland. They cannot come and see their grandchildren, who they haven't seen in over a year, even though they're currently vaccinated, and they'd be comfortable traveling and we'd have we'd be comfortable with them coming here. They still can't. Why? Because there's this travel ban on Europe, on many countries, which is for an administration that says we follow the science, the science says it's not coming. It's not the 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 few cases that are being imported are a spit in the ocean, not making a difference. Of course. And yet Compared yeah, to endemic the, transmission, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, yet it's and the still, State Department it's, just released, just announced, I believe, yesterday that 80% now of the world's countries are going to be on our level four do not travel list. And probably 80% of those countries have at least documented transmission rates lower than this one. Yeah. So yes, but that but that's the point of this is not to criticize any particular administration, which is not something I'm keen to do, yeah. but more to the more to the overarching point that the idea of again curtaining off part of the world when we're so porous and so interconnected is really quite futile. And we really, I mean, that's the lesson of the pandemic. It's like, yeah, yeah, brotherhood of man, we are really all in this together. Yes. Whether or not you feel that out of some sense of solidarity and fraternal love for all the world's peoples or pure selfishness in the sense of like, if you guys have it, I'm going to get it. So let's make sure you don't have it. Either well, way you want to go. You can't like herd immunity, right? We talk about herd immunity. What's yeah, the, the herd? herd is How all 7.8 billion of us. Yes. We are all the herd. We're the herd. We are. I'm sure there's some Inuit in Greenland that are like, God damn it. But they are, even they are part of the herd. They're part of the herd. I'm sorry. Um, so what countries handled it well? And what were the things that they did in order to handle it, quote, well? Oh, goodness. I mean, the, the examples that are usually trotted out are Taiwan. I mean, New Zealand, but New Zealand has just such an extraordinary geographical situation. Yeah. But I think you can give them, you can say, well done, New Zealand, but also like, okay, fine, just sit down because you're a little special. Yeah. Taiwan is an island, as we all know. But at the same time, is has an enormous number of connections to the Chinese mainland as well as to the rest of Asia. 
And their tactic of aggressive case searching very early and preventing importation worked well. But again, I, you, would that work in this country? Absolutely not. Like, it's great. We can applaud them. We can say, well done, Taiwan. Your contact tracing system was superb. And that's something others could definitely emulate. But in this country, 330 million people, massive geographical area, open border to the north, free travel to all of the other continents. It's just different. And so I don't grade our response particularly harshly or particularly well if I were keeping score. And there's also the issue of states' rights, right? Like federalism. We can this has been can... a civics lesson, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know how every doctor has been like brushing off all of their epidemiology knowledge? Because how how interested were you in biostats when you were a first year med student? You knew it was going to be on step one, so you kind of like begrudgingly studied it. But were you really fired up about it? Fired up? Yeah. No, definitely probably not. not. No. Probably now not. you're like, oh God, positive predictive value. Okay, I really care about that. And the same thing, like, oh, I still need MR- to Google it every time. <laughs> and every you're like, time. oh, an mRNA vaccine that works via liposomes and endosomes, and okay. I'm very interested in this. I need to brush up a lot, right? Every doctor. It's the first time I opened The Cell, that textbook, (laughs) The Cell. Yes. That we all, I don't know, do we had it in med school or undergrad? I even forget where it was from, but uh, there it was. We all had it. We did all have it. And you opened it up. I opened it up. Look at that. And was there like a really satisfying cloud of dust that blew off theatrically or anything? Aggravated my allergies, the whole thing. Yeah. Did you shoot a montage of yourself achieving enlightenment reading? No. Yeah, it was like a it was like a scene out of that Val Kilmer movie where they're all studying and they they create a montage out of it. Yeah. Uh, oh, what was the name? Real genius. Real genius. Like that scene, exactly. and there was music playing in the background as I'm reading my book. So this clearly is going to be the first, like the intro to your YouTube channel. Clearly. The montage. The so montage of Brad achieving enlightenment via yeah. the cell. Yeah. Anyway, so that it's it's akin to that, right? So yeah. we've all sort of brushed up on everything. And therefore achieved enlightenment. Yeah. This was going somewhere. No. 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 We were at we were at who handled it well, Taiwan, New Zealand, but you know, contact tracing. And then the benefit to the physicians was that we brushed up on our biostats and stuff that we weren't that <laughs> interested in and our cell biology. And now we're all We've all actually, maybe we'll remember some of the stuff that we studied in year one of medical school, but we'll forget it in short order. And as far as health systems go, I mean, I could turn this question back to you. I think for the most part, the American medical system did a really good job, honestly. I think there was a lot of, of resource allocation and you know, staff as well as supplies and and everyone just sort of threw their all into fighting COVID, evolving with the science and the political climate, the state political climate. Oh, I know where this was going. It was civics. Civics. Federalism. Like federalism. We've all brushed up on federalism. You know, how often do you think about it? Yeah. Like how often do you live in New York state? I live in Ohio. How, How often do you really think hard about how different it is to live in those two places? I mean, maybe you can in terms of jokes. Yeah. But I mean, we have Buckeyes and you don't, obviously. But, you know, yeah, we don't follow pandemic. college sports. New Yorkers <laughs> don't follow college sports. No, it's an actual tree. Nuts. But, oh. but 
in the pandemic, this has become front order, you know, if like front burner, I should say, because it, the response has been so heterogeneous across the country. And what's legal in one state isn't legal in another. The restrictions in one are in no way mirrored by the restrictions in another. The resources of states thrown at it has been different, wildly different from place to place. You know, even now, now, now the question of the day is molecular surveillance with regards to the variants, right? Well, states differ unbelievably in terms of their reference laboratories and their funding, the private partnerships, everything, in terms of what they have on the ground to be able to sequence samples and get a picture molecularly about which variants are circulating. So we have great data from some, like Michigan, we have great data. And then in others, it's an absolute black box. It's still the case, you know, even 13 months plus into the pandemic. So civics. Civics. So we could talk about how well some countries did and how poorly some countries did. We could then talk about how well some states did and how yeah. so poorly some other states. And There's a strong case for federalism. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I we mean, got not to see, really. We got to see Hamilton because of the pandemic. I don't know when we would have possibly seen Hamilton, but we got Disney Plus. We see Hamilton. And now my kids know all the words. Curse words and all. I was going to say, is that, a, is that a boon? Maybe. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been, as always, an absolute pleasure, but it is only part one. Are you okay? You up for part two? Yeah, I mean, that's quite the tease. It's, so, like, it's like, are you still watching? Are you still watching? Part two is going to be a separate episode. So next week, uh, for all the listeners, you're going to hear us talk about the vaccine, the vaccines, uh, which Dr. Kasten is one of the few people in the country to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. So maybe we'll learn a little more about that. So- Definitely dial in next week where we talk about vaccines. And for this week, Dr. Kasten, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Brad. It was great. Before we end, don't forget to hang out with my friend, Dr. Aaron Wiseman, over at Dr. Me First on your favorite podcast app. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.